Welcome to the Wedlake Bell Legal Podcast, covering a range of legal topics, including updates from our four practice groups private client, real estate, business services, and dispute resolution. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast for quarterly in advance real estate news from Wedlake Bell. I'm Suzanne Gill, a partner in the commercial property team, and I'm joined today by Alex Beach, who's one of our trainee solicitors. Thanks, Suzanne. And hi, everyone. Pleased to be here. Let's start on an optimistic tone, looking forward to the extra bank holiday for King Charles's coronation. Alex, I see there's a legal implication for our listeners to consider. Yes, that's right. And so you can be certain that you're able to fully enjoy May's bonus bank holiday. Listeners should exercise caution as to whether their extra long weekend could impact their property's transaction completion date. Now, it may seem obvious, but on the 8th of May, banks will be closed, meaning completion money cannot be transferred. And the professionals you typically rely on to assist on a property transaction will be on leave. Having been notified of the bank holiday date six months in advance, it may seem unlikely that any completion date will fall on the 8th of May. However, sometimes a completion date is not fixed, and instead it is triggered by the happening of a certain event. A typical example is the grant of planning permission. The contract may require that following the grant of the planning permission, the completion is to then take place in a specified time period. For example, in no more than five working days. In this scenario, the date of completion will largely depend on the contract's definition of working day and whether this excludes a statutory bank holiday. If it does exclude bank holiday, the completion date will naturally roll on to Tuesday, the 9th of May, without the parties needing to formally record any changes. Although, we would suggest that all parties please do carefully check and make sure they pre-agree to any new date of completion and be mindful that, in any case, the Banking and Financial Dealings Act 1971 prevents an individual being compelled to make a payment on a bank holiday. We're not expecting a coronation very often, but we do quite often see the phrases without prejudice and subject to contract in emails and in letters. People do ask me whether they really need to say this or whether alternatively it's a problem and they shouldn't say it at all. So for something to be without prejudice, it has to be a genuine attempt to settle a dispute. For example, a rent review. You might think the rent market rent is £100,000, but you're ready to settle at ninety-five in order to avoid going to court. The £95,000 offer is therefore without prejudice. Perhaps you're worried that you should have written without prejudice on a communication. The court will look at the substance of the communication rather than the without prejudice label, The label might be helpful, but it's not a cast iron protection. The real point is that if there's no dispute, the phrase is meaningless. However, subject contract is important to think about, especially as the courts have long held that an email signature automatically applied is just as good as a fountain pen lovingly and carefully applied to a written contract. A long chain of emails might well set out all the terms for a sale, which is what you need for the 1989 Law of Property Miscellaneous Provisions Act. If you're expecting all the, retur- all the terms to be recorded in some future proper document, then marking your emails subject to contract really is good advice. Moving beyond contending with rent payment, many of you may have also faced the headache of knowing how to issue or what to do on receipt of a service charge demand. Now, I wrote an article in our most recent QIA on what is referred to as a Section 20 notice under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985. 
Section 20 of the 1985 Act concerns the landlord's requirement to consult a residential tenant where certain service charge contributions are due. Service charge is usually the fine term in the lease document and typically covers standard maintenance and repair work to your property. However, in some circumstances, significant repair work might be required. The landlord will be reluctant to carry out work without the reassurance that they can recover the cost for those works. On the other hand, a tenant will not want to be met with an unexpected, costly and potentially unfair service charge demand without some background as to what these costs relate to. Section 20, therefore, requires the landlord to consult its tenants where certain conditions are met. Conditions include whether works amount to what is referred to as qualifying works, which is works where the landlord will need to request more than £250 from one contributing residential tenant in relation to a single set of works. Under the consultation procedure, the landlord will be required to notify the tenants of the intended works and also grant the tenant an opportunity to raise any comments regarding the works themselves. The procedure gives the landlord clear guidelines to follow where they want to collect a service charge demand for any qualifying works and likewise offer the tenant a level of protection against what could otherwise be excessive service charge costs. Alex has referred to residential tenants just now, but of course Section 20 notices are also important on mixed-use buildings. The next update we covered takes us all the way to the Supreme Court on the Hillside case. People might remember that case involved a multi-phase development scheme. The country's highest court has clarified one point from the Court of Appeal, and that's that if a permission is partially completed, but then a later permission is granted which is inconsistent with the first, the works originally carried out are not made unlawful by the later permission. However, as a result of this case, drop-in planning applications have a much more limited scope, so people need to be careful before using them. You might need a new application covering the entire site if you want to make material changes. To juxtapose slightly from multi-phase developments, our next article takes a look at planning laws application all the way down to a bucolic town and village greens. Although interestingly, under the Commons Act 2006, there is no distinction between a town or a village, and instead they are referred to collectively as a TVG. An application to register land as a TVG can be made under the 2006 Act, where a significant number of the inhabitants of any locality have indulged as of right in lawful sports and pastimes on the land for a period of at least 20 years and continue to do so at the time of the application. The registration of a TVG has significant consequences for any developer as any activity on TVG land that causes damage or interrupts its use as a TVG could be a criminal offence. TVG status will clearly be in the interest of many residents of both towns and villages who would look to prevent any development from occurring in their own towns and developers should then be mindful of the implication that TVG registration may have on their development plans. Trigger events can block a TVG application, and in our magazine, we consider a recent case where Bellway Homes tried to argue that a trigger event had occurred. Yes, developers have more protection from TVGs since 2013, but that case shows that challenges still remain. I now have a very tenuous link from village greens to green leases. As funds seek to bolster their environmental credentials, they're looking at the small print of leases, both new and existing ones. So does the lease give the landlord the right to enter the property to carry out improvements to bring it up to scratch to be let? Are those costs recoverable through the service charge? 
Will the works impact on M&E services like lifts and air conditioning? And does the lease allow for that type of disruption? The recent case of Clipper Logistics and Scottish Equitable suggests green clauses can't be forced through as modernisation on a 1954 Act lease renewal, though that's only a county court decision, so it's informative rather than binding. With all this said, I do have at least one tenant client who'd like their landlords to do more to green the building and share information, so it's not all a head-to-head battle here. On the subject of green building, from the 1st of April 2023, the government's MEES regulations, that is, the Minimum Energy Efficiency Standard, will be applied to many commercial properties in both England and Wales. At present, landlords cannot grant you leases to either new or existing tenants or properties that have an Energy Performance Certificate, an EPC, with a rating of F or G, unless they have a registered valid exemption. From the 1st of April, the MEES regulations will apply to all existing leases, meaning that it will be unlawful for landlords to continue to let a property with an EPC rating of F or G without a valid exemption. Non-compliance may result in an enforcement authority imposing financial penalties of up to £150,000 and publishing transgressions, which will have obvious negative PR implications. There's also the issue of what happens if a lease has to end halfway through, so watch out for more news on this in the next 12 months. Inflation has hit the news for all the wrong reasons in the last 12 months. The logistics sector has used rent reviews linked to inflation for a very long time now, with very little case law resulting from that. However, there are still some issues to be aware of, and in QIA I've got a piece summarising why RPI tends to be higher than CPI. Although it's a service charge case rather than a rent review one, the court decision in Arnold and Britain shows what happens when a formulaic increase goes wrong. The service charge there rose by 10% every year, And this compounding soon meant the service charge was more than the mobile homes paying the charge were worth. I think the key takeaway here is to test your rent review clause with a critical friend and some actual numbers to see what happens in year 10 and year 15 is what you're expecting. Continuing on with some more topical news, we are all aware of the unfortunate ongoing conflict in Ukraine and are individually experiencing the everyday knock-on effects, such as the increased inflation, as mentioned by Suzanne that can be partly attributed to this conflict. Although aside from rising costs, the UK Secretary, Andrew Griffith, imposed in his words the most severe sanctions ever on Russia. Whilst we are hopeful that none of our listeners will appear on the sanctions list, it can nonetheless have real knock-on effects for anyone who is transacting with a party whose name does appear. For example, if your landlord is subject to an asset freeze, it would be unlawful to both receive or make funds available to them and as such, a tenant could be in breach of the sanctions regime by continuing to pay rent to a sanctioned landlord. Clearly, if the tenant stops paying rent, they remain susceptible to a contractual breach of their tenancy agreement and may even face eviction. If you do find yourself in a scenario where you are transacting with a sanctioned party, then the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, the OFSI, allows tenants to apply for a licence, allowing them to make payment. A high-profile licensee you may have heard of is former owner of Chelsea Football Club, Roman Abramovich, who holds an OFSI licence to enable ground rent payments to be made to the Crown Estate for a property on Kensington Palace Gardens in West London. Oh, we almost got to the end of the podcast without mentioning the pandemic. The widespread move to flexible working means many office occupiers are re-evaluating how much and what sort of space they need. 
Often, that means making use of a break clause. Remember that it's critical to follow the terms of the break clause absolutely to the letter. If the lease says decorate in the last 12 months, then decoration 13 months before the end of the term won't do. And watch out for conditions requiring rent or rents to be paid. This might cover amounts which fell due a number of years ago and which weren't even demanded at the time. Quite a lot of people know how important those conditions are, but are then surprised to find out that there's no going back once you've served a break notice, even between consenting adults. If you agree with your landlord to stay for a bit longer after the break notice has expired, you will need a new lease. It's somewhat of a nuclear option, a break notice, so do allow plenty of time. That's all we've got time to cover today. Thank you for having me. And as a reminder, all these points and more are covered in our magazine, Quarterly in Advance. This can be found on the Wedlake Bell website or otherwise in your inbox. Well said. Thanks so much for joining me today, Alex, and thanks to you all for listening. You just listened to the Wedlake Bell Legal Podcast. If you liked our episode and want to know more, then check out our website, www.wedlakebell.com. Wedlake Bell. Building relationships is at the heart of everything we do.